Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. This episode begins with a reading from Sophie Roche-Conti, who shares a passage from a book that reshaped her perspective and inspired her to slow down. Here's more from Sophie. Hi, I'm Sophie Roche-Conti. I'm the founder of Conti Communications. We are a new media and communications agency based in New York City. Something that made me slow down recently was the notion of feeling good all the time and having that be okay. I grew up in a family where hard work, discipline, and restrained indulgence ran supreme. Enjoyment must be earned, and it is both a rare and sacred commodity saved primarily for Sundays. I wanted to share an introductory passage from Gay Hendricks' book, The Big Leap. It had me think twice about the possibility of feeling good all the time. We humans have a long and wonderful history of transcending our beliefs of what's possible. In the early days of the steam-powered train, learned scientists urged capping the speed at 30 miles per hour because they believed that the human body exploded at speeds greater than that. Finally, some brave people risked going beyond that limiting belief, and they found out that they did not explode. I think we're approximately at that same stage of development with regard to our ability to feel good and to have our lives go well. In my life, I've discovered that if I cling to the notion that something's not possible, I'm arguing in favor of limitation. If I argue for my limitations, I get to keep them. Ultimately, we have to ask ourselves, what's the payoff for arguing forcefully for our limitations? In the case of the steam engine, scientists were trying to protect people from harm. The limiting belief was well-intentioned, even though it was erroneous. From my experience with a lot of people, as well as myself, over the past few decades, I think we can put our minds at ease. Being willing to feel good naturally and having our lives go well is not a safety hazard. In my view, saying yes to that question is one of the most courageous actions a human being can take. In the face of so much evidence that life hurts and is fraught with adversity on all fronts, having a willingness to feel good and to have life go well all the time is a genuinely radical act. Going into space is no longer radical. You can buy a ticket online. However, going into your deepest inner depths, where your most deeply held beliefs about what's possible reside, counts in my book as a radical act. If we think it's even remotely possible to feel good all the time and have life go well all the time, we owe it to ourselves to find out how many of us can do it. Thank you so much again to Sophie for sharing. Again, the passage she read is from the book, The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. Now here's my conversation with Jen Batchelor of Kin. Conscious connection with others has taken on a whole new level of importance after a year of isolation and recalibration. But if you ask changemakers like Jen Batchelor, lasting connection comes from within and begins with fueling the body and mind, the heart and soul. Enter Kin, co-founded in 2018 by Jen as the first packaged euphoric beverage, a non-alcoholic spirit made of adaptogens, nootropics, and botanics, designed to give you that unique alcohol-fueled buzz, but without any of the negative effects. A 
third-generation social libation entrepreneur, Jen has risen to prominence as a leader in euphorics, and her category-defining work has created new avenues for those looking to engage in the time-honored ritual of gathering around a table. With products like Dreamlight, High Road, and the recently launched Lightwave, Kin's whimsical messaging and vibrant visuals have created a rich experience for those who identify with conscious creativity, connection, and consumption. While Kin's big message comes in a relatively small bottle, this vessel is a vehicle for Jen's larger mission to recalibrate our relationship with drinking and reclaim our agency to feel good and in turn lift up others to truly come to life. And in this interview, Jen shared more about how a few pivotal moments in her childhood informed her perspective on community and hosting, what she hopes to bring to the ritual of gathering today, and the storytelling and science of Kin. With the latter in mind, if you're curious about Kin's formulations, you can visit kinuphorics.com to learn more. And in the meantime, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jen Batchelor, co-founder of Kin. For starters, I'm a new mom. I have a nine-week-old, which has absolutely transformed how I see myself and my contribution to the world. And it's been extremely humbling, but it's definitely my number one preoccupation outside of work itself. And I moved to Austin in August of last year in 2020, and it's renewed my spirit for all things nature. I mean, any water activity that I could possibly do, I'm doing here in Austin. I had no idea how lush this place was and how much I really missed being in nature. So that's been an amazing surprise for me. And what do I value? Oh gosh, if 2020 didn't put into perspective what all we value, what's important, what's essential in our lives, I I really don't know what would But for me, family above all else, love and intimate relationships, good food, good conversation, honesty, authenticity, and kissing. (laughs) I think those top it. And I'm sure being in Austin too has kind of helped renew your relationship with Pace. You know, in terms of values, I know professionally, conscious creativity is a big one for you. And a lot of how you translate that, at least through kin, is through storytelling. And on that note, is there a story that you've come across, whether it's been an article, a poem, or a book that has made you slow down or sort of re-inspired your relationship with conscious creativity or connection? There are many. I feel like I come across them all day, every day. And certainly the stories that we get firsthand from our guests are an absolute reinvigoration and reframing even of the work as they come in and just share so intimately what they've gone through and where the work that we're doing has sort of inspired a change in their lives, which is great. I'm constantly inundated with reasons to slow and reasons to take what we're doing very seriously. But one particular book I would say that impacted me over the last 12 months is Leo Buscaglia's Living, Loving, and Learning. It's a beautiful book. And of course, this is a doctor who had experienced and um, witnessed many, many deaths in his career and sort of took the time to really reflect on what's valuable and meaningful in life when we know that the end is the same for everyone. And one of the things that jumped out at me about his book is the way he talks about intimacy and the importance of relationships. And he just sort of says, 
we can orbit the earth, we can touch the moon, but this society has not devised a way for two people to live together in harmony for seven straight days without wanting to strangle each other. They tell us that intimacy is out of date, but I say that intimacy is absolutely essential. We're all going to go mad. Go ahead and live in isolation if you can. I believe that you can judge your level of mental health to the degree that you can form meaningful and lasting relationships. Not the quantity of these relationships, but the quality of them. And then he goes on to sort of share the different definitions of intimacy and different stories that he's experienced in his practice. But it's just, you know, such a great reminder that there's so much distraction in the world of social media and there's so much fleeting social interaction that make us believe that we're social. Couple that with the experience of the pandemic where we truly had to self-isolate for our safety. And I do believe you get a resurgence of the need, the craving to be in harmony with others, in true relationship with others. And that conscious connection becomes truly something to behold and not to take for granted. And I think we're going to see a lot more forging of true, deep, intimate relationships this year than ever before. Would you say, though, that you've learned something about connection through this time of solitude? As somebody who's so invested in gathering, I'm curious what's risen to the top for you. Yeah, I mean, our brand is so inherently social that we talked a lot about deepening connection, especially with the very nature of of what we make being centered around helping folks achieve that liberation around being able to think freely and clearly while socializing and stopping and actually having a meaningful moment with somebody at a party. But of course, without the party element, it begged the question of, well, when we are isolated with a smaller group or we are present with family during times like these, how do you get beyond the small talk? And how do you deepen your understanding of one another? How do you develop a sense for for empathy beyond just what we were experiencing pre-pandemic, which I think was more of a surface level experience of one another? Yeah, I think the pandemic just brought into focus the ability to and the need to really get to know someone intimately, what their fears are, what their aspirations are, and you know, sort of be able to see ourselves clearly in others. Very much value that. You know, I feel like that's one way for us to continue evolving as humans is to be able to reflect our own experiences against others. So yeah, that was definitely a pleasant surprise from the chaos of last year. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on the subject of limitations or learning to make do with circumstances as they are, I'd love to go back a little further to your childhood. You spent some of your formative years in Saudi Arabia where drinking was not allowed, but your family still found a way to kind of cultivate that connection that usually comes in a setting where you're having a drink and you're socializing. And I'd love to have you share a little bit about that time in your life and the stories from that time and how they've informed how you show up personally and professionally today. You hit it on the head. My parents were certainly seeking camaraderie. They were seeking familial bond out of you know, 5,000 miles away from, from home base, from their own families, as we expatriated to Saudi Arabia back in the early 90s. And being as young as they were, you know, they had me and they were 17. And we moved there when they were probably just turning 21. And so I think at that age, with a five-year-old, you know, you 
are still very much, you know, full of youth and, you know, coming culturally from a place, you know, my mom's Cuban French, my dad has Puerto Rican ancestry and Irish ancestry. And, you know, I think just together, they were the life of the party. And, you know, coming to a place like Saudi Arabia that was still under and is still today in prohibition and, and under Islamic law where alcohol and drugs are prohibited and very, very not just frowned upon, but the tax, the punishment for dabbling in these things or, you know, bringing them into the country is quite severe, right? So a tall, tall task and a big risk on my dad for actually going forward and distilling his own Siddiqui, which is a desert moonshine, his own wines, his own beers, so that he could gather his friends, gather people to our home and try to have some semblance of a normal social experience. I put normal in quotations because for them, that's, that's what they grew up in and that's what they valued. And, um, you know, certainly growing up in that environment, there were a lot of things that I experienced that I probably shouldn't have that early. Alcohol can make us do funny things. It can also make people who are dependent on that particular ingredient to have a good time or to feel like they can let loose can really transform them into people they don't want to be. We've all sort of seen that in our, I think, our drinking experiences. But what I also saw was the value of coming together over food and drink and coming together on a regular basis as a ritual. So every Thursday night, which was our weekend, we would have families and kids and adults alike come together, you know, every single weekend. And our place was sort of the community watering hole. I learned very quickly how to become a good host. And I think that's just an invaluable skill and really an art form that we all share and, and bring to the table at Kin as well. It's just we want to serve our guests. We want them to have an enchanted experience and nothing less. We don't see our guests as just another transactional passing to sustain a business. We actually see it as our love and it's a labor of love. So I learned a lot of things, but I would say the primary of them all, the one that sustained was there's pleasure in the sharing of a moment together. And I just wanted to be able to evolve that ritual so people could walk away feeling good about their experience and their decisions and their connections versus regretful. It comes across just from my personal experience in the kin world. And I'm curious too, were there any rituals that you had to let go of to create space for kin to come to life in terms of the communal mission, but also the business? You know, I think we were very, very intentional about how does kin show up and where do we show up? You know, there's such an emphasis on the need for a bar, for example, when it comes to the drinking ritual itself. And while we honor that, you know, there's certainly a practical use for a bar itself and it sort of has served and past experiences as a bit of an altar for the work that we do. We also realized that the conscious creatives that were coming to the forefront of this movement of euphorics and really wanting, sort of demanding this conscious connection after hours, were wanting to do other things than just sit at a bar per se after they got their drink. They wanted to cozy up on a couch. They wanted to go and paint something. They wanted to dance certainly and, and have conversation and actually be heard. They wanted to give talks and do comedy. There were just so many other things that Ken became a catalyst for in the moment that 
we wanted to expand the ritual by designing the space to actually facilitate those activities. And it was inspired actually by one of our bar partners in New York, where they were like, you know, I've never sat and heard a group of people having drinks, which of course they were drinking what they call kintails, euphoric space drinks that were designed by the mixologist there. And listen to them having these rich conversations. And then of course, 30 minutes in, ask for a stack of cocktail napkins. And, you know, I'm looking at them thinking, okay, they were going to share each other's numbers or something like that. And in fact, what they ended up doing for the next two hours at the bar was doodle and draw and sketch and craft these incredible little mini works of art on cocktail napkins. And just like, that was so surprising and, and fun and amazing to witness for that mixologist. And, you know, it sparked a, a light bulb in us and saying, you know, there are elements in kin that do live in the mind and, and really spark a sense of creativity and ease that many creatives have found to be almost like, you know, creative juice that inspires a creative act. And so we wanted our spaces and the rituals surrounding kin to very much support that kind of energy and see what would come of it. It's a tall order, but I think to your point earlier in our conversation, it was one that was well overdue. I'm curious from a category perspective, were you more interested in pushing the boundaries of the science or the storytelling or both? It is both. You know, I mean, I I look at my own training in Ayurvedic medicine. And when you look at that practice, you know, it's a 3,500 year old study of life. But the value and really what gets examined and what gets applied as part of that life science, as, as they call Ayurved actually breaks down to mean the knowledge of life is that it's just as much of an art as it is a science. And that's very true for the way that we think about everything at Kin from the formulation and philosophy itself to how we show up, how we talk about the product. There's a little bit of mystique. A lot of people say, oh, your brand and even your product is a mystery to me. And that's true because inherently adaptogens, which is very much an active component of all of our drinks, are life's greatest mystery. It's herbology's greatest mystery. There's been many studies around these herbs trying to figure out how do they work? How is it that they're able to adapt internally to an individual's endocrine system and an individual's neurochemistry and biome and their their sort of full holistic system to help that organism return to homeostasis because the effects are different per person, right? And so how is it that it's so smart, it's able to adapt and in turn enables the person to adapt to their environment, to whatever stressors are occurring internally, to their mental state, to return to a place of equanimity. And so you know, I think there's just a lot of symbolism in the choices that we've made. And so there really wasn't one area that I was looking to usurp with our findings and, and with our product. It was like, no, it's it's just as important to be able to tell these individual stories and to embrace the artistry behind this as it is to say, hey, science has given us these incredible nootropics, these incredible ingredients to help us rise to any occasion to help us, you know, combat the negative effects of stress and to help us come into our own. So I think in that we were definitely the first and we will continue to bring the two together for the sake of humanity. Did you have to make any adjustments to Kin's story or messaging to kind of accommodate this new language that we've developed when talking about wellness, well-being, health? 
especially within the last year? Sure. For starters, you know, even the way that we talk about how we came to name our category, you know, euphorics is a term and a word that we coined, right? Something that we realized we, as a mission, wanted to return back to humanity in the sense that the word euphoria itself over the last 50 to 60 years had completely been hijacked by drug culture. And for those who who know the actual, you know, origin story behind euphoria, you'll come to see why. But, you know, the fact is that word euphoria does have Greek origins. It breaks down to mean to bear well within and was finally coined and sort of co-opted in, by the English language by physicians in the 1700s that used it to mark in their notes when a patient went from feeling ill to now being returned to self, returned to feeling great. So it was like administered, you know, in the notes it would say administered herbal tincture containing XYZ on day three, patient achieved euphoria. And we all know what that feels like. We all know what it feels like to have a cold or the flu or God forbid COVID you experienced. And then finally waking up, you know, you're going through that experience and being like, oh my gosh, I've never felt so awful. And, you know, taking care to hydrate and, and do whatever it is you're going to do to try to get back to feeling well. And then that morning when you wake up and you're like, oh my gosh, I can breathe through my nose and my head doesn't hurt and my body doesn't ache. I'm euphoric. You know, come 1960, we forgot what that word meant. We started using it to say, to explain that we were out of our minds. We were on drugs. We were high. And, you know, the sad part is there is a word to describe that feeling and it's ecstasy. Ecstasis breaks down to mean to be outside of oneself to be outside of one's stasis, one's state. And, you know, what happens, and especially for me, I'm a bit of a word nerd. I, I take it very seriously when a word gets hijacked out of our vocabulary. I do believe that we have less of an opportunity to experience that state, right? If that word is being misused, how can we describe the state? How can we feel it if we don't have a descriptor for it? And our intention was very much to, to return folks to a state of equanimity, to return people to their center. And there hasn't been a time that I can think of, certainly not in my lifetime, that we've needed to feel that sense of self in a good way, in a feel-good way, as much as we did in 2020. There was so much noise, so much fear, so much anxiety, and you know everything that we did to talk about kin in that moment was to help us all deliver ourselves, you know, from that state and back to a state of feeling safe and free and clear. Because without that, you know, how can we really show up in our full power every day? And so that very much started to become more of the story that we were telling each other so we could all rise up together and, and get out of our situation. And I think that was very powerful for us last year. It's interesting, just as you were kind of speaking about the evolution of the meeting of euphoria, something that I'm interested in is how things like that happen in a digital backdrop, especially in an age of these silos of information, which make it hard to know what is true and what has been changed to a point of no return. And this has posed a particular challenge for business owners and kin comes from a personal place. And it's something that you have to, you know, make the decision of whether or not it's right for you in terms of actually drinking it. And I'm curious, you know, what you've learned about building a business and a community in this very volatile at times landscape and how it's also affected your relationship with Pace. You know, I think the community building was a happy accident. You know, we came at 
the development of our product very much in sense of, okay, we want to create a balm for society. We want to create something that helps people to question everything, question their habits, question who they are, how they want to feel, because so much of drinking culture, you know, at that point, pretty much 100% of the drinking culture was centered, first of all, around drinking alcohol. And we certainly question that for ourselves, you know, being a third time entrepreneur, looking back at alcohol and sort of trying to see it objectively, try to see it as a time traveler, perhaps. And the fact that we've had 10,000 years of conditioning around this ingredient is what allows us to continue drinking it in thousands of different formats, wine, tequila, beer, the list goes on and on, as you know, and do so without even thinking. And so taking a page out of the the book of Socratics and asking people, well, why do you drink? Actually, and without, you know, of course, it's a rhetorical question. It's not meant for us to actually sort of glean the insight. We, We know why people drink. They say they drink to relax. They say they drink to take the edge off, to reward themselves, to celebrate X, Y, Z thing. And yet when they really ask the question, do I need to drink alcohol to feel that way? Do I need to drink alcohol to celebrate? The answer is always no, always no, 10 out of 10. So without pace, without the conscious effort of making decisions that are intentional for our lives, kin would never be able to exist, right? Because until you answer that honestly, you won't actually see that if there was a better path forward, you would 10 out of 10 times choose it for yourself. And that's what we were trying to help people do. And so that community being a happy accident, you know, ladders back up to this idea of like, We're all better off when we can see each other and each other's stories. We're all better off when we can see someone else thriving by choosing a different path. We can then learn how to choose that path together. And so it's all tied into it. It's all tied into relationship, intimacy, being a beacon for others. All of those things have led to Kin becoming now the brand that it is, which is so rich in stories and community and togetherness because we all want to see the world become a better place and we know we can't do that without being that seedling being the person who's coming at everything consciously and really showing up for the things that that we know matter in our lives so yeah it's it's sort of all tethered in together yeah and i think kind of going back to what you were saying about questioning and this interrogation of how we make the world better and how we establish that sense of longevity in our connection you know i'm curious if there is one question that you hope people start asking you more often whether in that context or connection curious what your thoughts are there how do i want to feel and how do i want to make others feel I think inherently people want to feel good. They just don't ask themselves and either because they don't believe they don't have the agency to get there or they haven't tied together and made that connection that when we are in our best mood, when we are in our best state of health, when we are in our soundest of minds, we can then show up as our full selves and help others. And, you know, it's that whole, the adage of, of, you know, put your mask on before you help others. It's it's exactly the same thing. You know, we, we can't love anyone until we love ourselves. And we certainly can't help humanity until we help ourselves. And so I think there's a universal inherent truth to that. It just became more apparent this year, for sure. Yeah, you can say that again. Um, and I think, you know, as we reenter the real world, obviously existing 
in a digital plane won't entirely disappear, but something that I'm personally very interested in is this sort of oscillation between how we tell stories outside of our devices, but obviously how do we show up to be the best, I guess not version, but maybe the most intentional version of ourselves when we do have to be online. And so Slow Stories is really about how we kind of slow down and tell stories in this space. And, you know, similar to how you think about slow fashion or slow food. I'm curious what this idea of slow content or storytelling means to you with Kin. I'm a firm believer of we can't be that which we cannot see. And so there is a, a sense of whimsy and fantasy in everything that we do. There's also a sense of futurism and hope and aspiration. And the reason for that is because we want to help others and we want to join forces with others to usher in an entirely new era of, of social connection and meaning. And storytelling for us, our brand storytelling, the external, the push factor is only half of it. Like we're also very, very cognizant of and, and insatiably curious about the stories that people tell themselves. And, you know, it's a two-prong approach in that we're as empathetic as we are creative in our storytelling. We want to understand why there are millions and millions and millions of people in the world that believe the only way they can have fun is to intoxicate themselves. The key sort of word within that being toxic. You know, why is it that we so willingly accept that story that we've been told over and over again? Women especially, I have to say, you look at the research around the marketing of alcoholic products and drinks, um, and certainly women are preyed upon more than any other demographic. We are either the prey or we are the aggressor, right? So it's like you are either, you know, told that you are going to be sexier and more fun and more funny and what have you as a woman and you're going to step into your femininity, but you're also going to be a great feminist. I mean, look what Jen Beam did with Mila Kunis. They did a Women's History Month campaign with her and she was Jane Beam. And they were basically like, until you drink whiskey, you cannot wear a black suit with dignity and sit at a bar as a woman. That is such a bizarre campaign. And then you see the flip side of that, which is the marketing, the the rest of the marketing, which is about 90% of it, which is geared towards men that you'll be more masculine and you'll get the girl, but it's always a girl in the campaign. Right. And so I think for us, it's, it's taking back our agency across the board of defining who we are, defining what sex appeal means and how to achieve it, what fun, you know, entails and how it should make us actually feel during and after. And there's just so much to the storytelling aspect and the visuals that talk about that, that address what true empowerment is and what true sex appeal and whether it's looking at it from the biological standpoint, you know, how do we feel sexy? Well, let's look at the neurochemistry. Let's talk about what's happening with our endocrine system to the more whimsical and esoteric, which of course is, you know, everything from a sensation a sound, a visual that actually places us in that moment, art as medicine in that sense, and also the esoterics of Ayurveda. Where you look at the five senses and the doshas and the constitution and how we can come into our own by having an innate and intimate sense of who we are. And so storytelling tries to touch on all of those things, but most importantly, it tries to reflect the guest back to each other and show them how they could feel in the moment. I feel like there's so much more to kind of unpack on that subject, but I think 
in the spirit of, you know, storytelling and to bring our interview to a close, I'm actually starting a new ritual for slow stories and having each guest bookend the conversation by reading a passage or a quote from a story that best represents their personal, professional, or creative mission. Do you have something that you're able to share in that regard? There's an amazing book called The Spirituality of Imperfection. And it's something that I read before. It was like right when we were formulating Ken and I came back to it the other day and it's like, oh, this is how we came to build such an amazing community. And this is truly why we do what we do. So it says, the mind does not just react to stimuli. It responds to meanings. Our problem, as Evagrius Logismos suggests, is that we are inundated by too many thoughts and ideas an entangled mess of beliefs and opinions that fight it out with each other in the dark, eventually knocking each other out. Choose what you want to think about both Evagrius and James' counsel, and choose it carefully, because that choice determines the way you live your life. The essential achievement of the will, in short, when it is most voluntary, is to attend to a difficult object and hold it fast before the mind. Stories help us attend, and attending in a setting of storytelling and story listening helps us to remember, which means more than just to recall. As Wendell Berry reminds us in his novel, Remembering, it also means to be remembered, the opposite of being dismembered. It means entering the membership of a community. Memory in men is communal. Thus, although a spirituality of imperfection insists, pay attention to yourself. Such attending is not a self-centered, self-seeking but an awareness of oneself as related to others, as a member of a community. And so this sums up beautifully why it's important. The work that we do as it brings us closer to self is still centered and is guided by the need, the act, the desire to gather because we can't come into ourselves. We can't become ourselves fully until we are remembered, brought back into membership with others that are on the same path and the same journey. And so that's why we come together as kin. That was my conversation with Jen Batchelor, co-founder of Kin. You can shop Kin online at kinuphorics.com and follow them on social at kinuphorics. You can also follow Jen on social at Jen of Kin. Stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode on our own channels at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. I'm Rachel Schwartzman and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in.